Good morning. Please be opening your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. Several times in Matthew we've been forced to consider the dim-wittedness, the lack of discernment, and the downright faithlessness of the disciples, haven't we? Phrases like, how do you not understand? Or do you lack understanding also? Or why are you so afraid? Or you of little faith are a few of the exclamations of exasperation that have been generously scattered throughout this gospel, haven't they? This week, we see the disciples really get something for once. And that something that they get is the most important something that anyone can ever get. And that is, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? In Matthew 16, 13 through 17, we pick up our narrative. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, Who do people say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. We've all heard that. It's familiar to all of us. I'd say many of us have it memorized and can quote it as I'm saying it. But there's so much more there than meets the eye. And this morning we're going to consider some contextual preparation to help us understand this text better. We're going to look at the crowd's speculation and then at Peter's revelation of who Jesus, the Son of Man, really is, what he came to accomplish and usher in. Well, we begin with this contextual preparation in verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? This context-setting verse tells us two things that we need to know in order to understand this section rightly. And that's, first of all, the location, and second of all, Jesus' self-identification. Let's begin with the location. When Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, one thing we need to realize is that Caesarea Philippi wasn't always Caesarea Philippi. We need a little history lesson to help us understand all the nuances of this passage. The most prominent rulers in ancient history haven't just required obedience. They've demanded what can only be classified as outright worship. What they say is true and they are deity. To question them is to question God himself. And there was a revival of such required allegiance in the Roman Caesars at the time of Christ. This emperor worship became prominent in Rome after 42 B.C. when Julius Caesar... Who knows him? Who who knows that name? Aren't you glad that our faith is a faith that took place in space and time and the same names you're going to read in the Bible are the same names you're going to find on the pages of the history book? This isn't some devised myth made up long ago. These things happened in space and time. And Julius Caesar was uh, formally deified 
as Divus Julius, or the divine Caesar after he was assassinated. He had adopted a son named Octavian, who became uh, later known as Divus Julius Filius, or the son of the divine Julius, or some shortened it just to Divus Filius, which means, who knows, the son of God. You know Octavian better by the name that was conferred upon him when he became the first Roman emperor, Caesar Augustus. Augustus, the name means venerated or worshipful. Augustus absolutely embraced this idea of his imaginary divinity. But what does all this have to do with Caesarea Philippi? Well, Rome allowed all of the conquered people groups under them to function as they always had with one caveat. Rome was quite willing to recognize the religions of all the people and to give the religions approved status as legitimate religions provided that they all still recognized the superior jurisdiction of the state. The political order as the true primary manifestation of the divine. You can have all your little gods and do all your little cultural things, but Caesar is Lord. Refusal was looked upon as not just a religious offense, but as treason itself. The Roman Senate named compromising the the Roman the, the compromising non-Jewish non-Judah-born king Herod the Great as king in 40 BC, and 20 years later Caesar Augustus gave a region known as Peneus to Herod the Great. And Herod returned the favor by honoring Caesar, Caesar Augustus by building the emperor a temple consecrated to Caesar, the Augustium of Pananion. And what does one do in a temple? Well, they worship, right? Herod was thrilled to rule over the Jews, but he was also enthusiastic to recognize Caesar's superiority. He knew the pecking order, and he was happy to garner the favor that came from the emperor due to such condescension. When Herod the Great died, his brown-nosing son, Philip the Tetrarch, inherited the land, greatly enlarged the city, and he renamed this city, where the temple to Augustus was, this uh, uh, Peneus, he renamed it Caesarea, after Caesar Augustus in 3 BC. So... There were, but there were quite a few Caesareas. One was actually very close by. You had a, on the Mediterranean coast, west of Jerusalem, um, Caesarea Maritima. And there were actually quite other Caesareas that were farther away. You know, can any of you kind of fathom why there were so many Caesareas? Because all these little conquered provinces, they like to name something to get a little favor to honor Caesar because if you honor Caesar, he'll honor you right back, right? You be a good, loyal servant to Caesar and he'll throw you the scraps. It turns out that a lot of suck-ups wanted to name places after Caesar to gain his favor. So to differentiate his Caesarea from the others and to honor himself, he names it what? Caesarea Philippi. The Herodians were rulers over the Jewish people, but their allegiance was clearly to the Roman Empire. So, unsurprisingly, this outskirt area of Palestine, known as Philip Caesarea, was a pagan area. And all of history and archaeology testifies to that fact. 
Philip the Tetrarch even minted coins for his realm. On one coin, he had the head of Caesar Augustus on the head side, and on the back, he had his own portrait with the inscription of Philip the Tetrarch. The Tetrarch means a governor or a subordinate ruler. Man, he's sounding the trumpet. Yeah, okay, yeah, I'm a ruler, but he's a bigger ruler. Even on their money. Everywhere, bending the knee to Caesar. He intentionally highlighted the Jewish subordination to Rome. Another coin had the portrait of Herod Philip on, the, on, on one side and the uh, Augustium of Pananion, that temple on the reverse side. And later in 34 AD, he took his image off of it altogether. And on one side, you had Tiberius, who had became Caesar. And on the other side, you had the, uh, August, the, uh, the Pananion, the Augustium Pananion. So everything about Caesarea Philippi screamed the subjugation of the Jewish people. Everything about it. The, it's the subjugation of the Jewish people, of the Jewish religion, and also the subjugation of the God of Israel. Right? You can have your little God under the big God, Caesar. Augustus. Think about it. Everything screamed it, didn't it? Think. The name. It is Caesarea Philippi, not Philippi Caesarea, isn't it? What comes first? The Jewish tetrarch or subordinate governor who was granted his providence by Rome named the city after the allegedly deified Roman emperor with his name included to just differentiate it from the many provinces named in his honor. Because Roman authority was all over the known world. The architecture of Caesarea Philippi. You enter the province and the most elaborate building is a temple built by a Roman appointed king of the Jews built with Jewish tax dollars concentrated to worship the emperor. And the money, again, coined by the Jewish governor with the head side being the image of Augustus, the venerated one, and the tail side being the face of his subjugated tetrarch. At least that was the early coins. By the time the coins had Tiberius and the current emperor, who was the current emperor on the one side, you had just the praetorium. So Jews were taken out of it altogether. So we get why this location matters to understand what's going on here, doesn't it? But not only do we have in this uh, contextual preparation, we have the location. We also have this self-identification of Jesus. He was asking his disciples, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? He identifies himself here, doesn't he? He identifies himself as the Son of Man. Jesus calls himself many things in the Gospels. He calls himself the bridegroom. He calls himself the good shepherd. He calls himself the light of the world. He calls himself the vine. He calls himself teacher and Lord. He calls himself Messiah and Christ. But by far, his most used self-designation was this term, Son of Man. He called himself that over a hundred times in the Gospels. I don't love the modern translations here. You notice I've been quoting it a little different. Your modern translation says, Who do people say the Son of Man is? The King James says, Who do, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? With my weak grasp of the Greek language, I, I, I see this word, ego, and the form of ame that does seem to say that I, the Son of Man, am. So it's a, he's recognizing himself as that. Who do they say that I, the Son of Man, am? But what does it mean to be the Son of Man? Most people think of this title as referring to Jesus' humility, don't they? The Son of Man. His humanity, 
in the Incarnation. It makes us think of Jesus as the perfect man, the second Adam, the sinless representative of the human race. And He is all those things. But the only reason we think Son of Man refers to all those things is because we don't know our Bibles well enough. This title wasn't some cool title that Jesus thought up, for him, thought, thought up of for Himself. It comes directly out of the Old Testament. But when the Jews heard the title Son of Man, they couldn't have helped but think of divinity, divinity dominion, and judgment. Look at Daniel 7, 9 through 14. Turn over there because we need to see this is how the, the Bible, the Old Testament, uses this title Son of Man. The one that he refers to himself as a hundred times. He comes into Caesarea Philippi that's celebrating the deified Augustus. And he says, who do people say that I, the Son of Man, am? What's he mean, Son of Man? Daniel 7, 9 through 14. I kept looking until thrones were set up. And the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before them. Thousands upon thousands were attending to him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat, and the books were opened. Then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. That speaks of little rulers. And I kept looking until the beast was slain, speaking of government authorities, and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away from them, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. And I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. He came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before Him. And to Him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, all the nations, and men of every language might serve Him. There's a dominion the Son of Man has that's greater than any of the little horns and the little beasts on this earth for this Son of Man figure. His dominion is an everlasting dominion unlike all of those. All of, you know what about all those little horns... You know what they all have in common? They all die. He's going to have an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So He, not Caesar, is a figure of universal authority and sovereignty. And in accordance with that vision, and its context, it's in the context of great, great judgment. Look ahead at 7, 21 through 22. I kept looking. And that horn was raging war with the saints and overpowering them until... Guys, you ever get tired of getting overpowered? There's an until in this text, isn't there? Until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the highest and the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. Woo! Son of Man's a good title, isn't it? The Son of Man is executing judgment, standing in the place of the divine judge himself and taking dominion over the whole earth. This concept isn't new to the book of Matthew. Turn now with me. Who remembers the last time that Jesus used the term Son of Man? Who remembers? Parabolic discourse. So turn with me to Matthew 13. And this is exactly how Matthew, how Jesus uses this term Son of Man applied to Himself every time that He uses it. We find it in the parable of the wheat and the tares. 
he left the crowds and went in the house. His disciples came unto him and said, Explain the parable of the wheat and the tares. And he said, He that sows the good seed is the Son of Man. And the field is the world. As for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom. And the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. And the harvest is the end of the age. And the reapers are the angels. So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. Do you see these images from Daniel 7? Does he, you, we just read Daniel 7. Conjured up this judgment by fire of the tares. The Son of Man will send forth His angels and they'll gather out of His kingdom all stumbling blocks, all who commit lawlessness and throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. As we'll see, and as we'll see in this... Uh, in Matthew, uh, again later in, in chapter 26, you're going to see this again arise. When you understand the connotations of the title Son of Man, you realize what a masculine boss move it was for Jesus to answer the high priest questions in Matthew 26. Turn with me. We're going to turn a little bit. To Matthew 26, 63 through 67. The high priest said to Jesus... I adjure you, or place you under oath, by the living God, that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, You said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you'll see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. He quotes Daniel 7 to the high priest who is asking him, Are you the Christ? the Son of God, he says, you better believe I am. I'm the Son of Man figure that's going to come and put all my enemies, including you, under my feet. That's this Jesus figure. Then the high priest tore his robes and says he is blasphemed. Why? Because Son of Man's a divine title, not a human title. What further proof do we need? What need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. And what do you think? And they answered, He deserves death. And they spat in His face, beat Him with their fists, and others slapped Him. They had Jesus arrested, bound. He was on trial with His life on the line. And instead of showing fear, Jesus turns, uh, Jesus turns and claims to be the Son of Man who will execute judgment on them. I kept looking, and the horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints, of the highest one. And the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. He's saying, you may be judging me now, but I'll be judging you soon enough. Jesus knows full well who he is. But he asked his disciples to let them tell him who the crowd thinks he is. And they tell us of the crowd's speculation. Who do the... Okay, he says, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man... And he, they know this Son of Man background, but who do crowds say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they don't get that he's the Son of Man. They don't get that he's just a figure of authority. They speculate in verse 14. And they say, Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, but others still Jeremiah or one of the prophets. The crowds had no idea who Jesus was. If you'll remember, that's why he taught them in parables. Remember, before the parabolic discourse, the disciples said, Why do you speak to the masses in parables? And he says, Because to you it has been granted to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. 
They're blinded to the truth, so they speculate about who Jesus might be. First, they say he might be John the Baptist. We've heard that before, haven't we? Remember in Matthew 14, 1 and 2, at that time Herod, the ruler, heard reports about Jesus and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. And for this reason, these powers are at work in him. John the Baptist's entire ministry revolved around announcing the arrival of the promised Jewish Messiah who would judge his enemies. John the Baptist was a forerunner of the Messiah, a forerunner of this person who would come and restore Israel to its glory, to overthrow Rome. John's quoting John, I baptize you with water for repentance, but one who is more powerful than I is coming after me, and I'm not worthy to carry his sandals. And I will baptize you, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He'll be the one that judges. His winnowing fork is in hand. He'll clear the threshing floor, and he'll gather his wheat into the granary, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. The crowds have heard that John was murdered by Herod Antipas. But they were more ready to believe Jesus was a reincarnated John the Baptist or a resurrected John the Baptist come back from the grave to continue his ministry of announcing the Messiah than they were to believe that this compassionate, miracle-working Jewish carpenter was the powerful judge who would bring the fire of judgment and the winnowing fork of division. Like Herod, these people recognized that Jesus' miraculous powers were amazing and they reasoned that it must be due to a supernatural resurrection. Just a little bit of thought would have put this foolish thought to bed, wouldn't it? John the Baptist and Jesus were basically the same age. They were contemporaries who had served side by side. Just a bit of asking around would have led uh, them to learn that Jesus and John were actually cousins and that John had baptized Jesus and that John had even said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But many people don't want to be encumbered by too much thinking. Have you ever noticed that? They don't like thinking very much. They like to speculate. When you try to make them think, they shut down. So, ah, maybe he's John the Baptist. But not everybody believed it was John the Baptist raised from the dead. They didn't believe that hokum. Many turned to the Scriptures, and they thought it might be Elijah. At least these people speculated from reading the Scriptures. Many believe Jesus was, uh, was the return of Elijah, considered by most Jews to be the supreme prophet. Remember, Elijah never died. He's one of the few people that never died. He was taken up into the heavens by a chariot of fire in 2 Kings 2.11. So he could absolutely come back. It didn't even require a resurrection, did it? And not only could he absolutely come back, because he never died, this possibility became a concrete expectation because of Malachi 4, 5 through 6, a messianic prophecy when it says, Behold, I'm going to send who? Elijah the prophet. Before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord, he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. So they believed the Messiah was coming, but Elijah had to come first, so they reasoned. Elijah hasn't come. The Messiah is coming. Perhaps this miracle worker is the promised Elijah. Elijah performed all kinds of miracles in the Old Testament. Look, this Jesus must be the Elijah who's going to finally bring in this Son of Man who's going to destroy everybody. Maybe Jesus is the Elijah to prepare the way for the Son of Man. 
We see that expectation in Matthew 17, 10 and 27, 47 through 49. I don't want to have you turn there, but you can look at it in your own time. There was also extra-biblical text. Sirach 48, 1 through 9 uh, said it, it focused on the prospect of judgment and miracles and nature and healing being the ministry of this coming Elijah figure. It wasn't canonical, but they believed in it. In light of this non-inspired text, it made it easy to identify Jesus as Elijah. To this day, modern Orthodox Jews tragically show their rejection of Jesus as Messiah during the Passover celebration because they leave a chair open at the table for Elijah in hope that he'll finally show up and announce the Messiah's arrival. Guys, he already came. He's already came. But still others speculated that Jesus might be another prophet. They speculated that maybe he's not John the Baptist, maybe he's not Elijah, maybe he's Jeremiah. That one's more of a head-scratcher. You've got to think about it a little bit. John the Baptist being fresh on everyone's mind as recently murdered but then raised from the dead is weird, but it makes sense as a speculation from an ignorant, superstitious people. And Elijah returning to earth after being carried to heaven in a chariot of fire makes sense, especially in light of Malachi 4, 5, and 6. But why would they think Jesus was Jeremiah? Well, two reasons. One is the biblical writings. They did look to the Bible. Where does the Old Testament mention a return of Jeremiah? Well, it doesn't, but if you read it, you can't miss the similarities between Jesus and Jeremiah. Jeremiah can rightly be described as a prophet of doom. It's easy to forget that Jesus' message had that in common with Jeremiah. In fact, basically all of the Christian doctrine, everything we know about the doctrine of hell, guess where it comes from? Jesus meek and lowly. That's where it came from. He preached on destruction and judgment and fiery wrath coming down on people throughout the book, all the time, just like Jeremiah had. He talked about hell more than he talked about heaven. Also consider the sustained opposition that Jeremiah encountered amongst his own people, especially the religious leaders. Jeremiah was a prophet who reportedly spoke against the temple in Jerusalem. And though this feature is yet to emerge in Matthew, it will become more and more important. Jesus will be tried in part because of his direct prediction about the temple being destroyed and rebuilt. He'll be mocked on the cross for the same reason. You who are going to destroy the temple and raise it again, save yourself. Come down from the cross. So that, he had all these things in common with Jeremiah. Plus, they also had the apocryphal writings. We don't read them because they're not inspired, but they did read them and think that they had a lot of authority, that you could trust them. In the apocryphal book of 2 Maccabees 2, 4 through 8, Jeremiah is said to have taken the Ark of the Covenant. Nobody knew where it was. It had been lost. Well, the apocryphal book said... Jeremiah took the Ark of the Covenant and the altar of incense out of the temple and hid them on Mount Nebo in order to preserve them from desecration and destruction by the Babylonians. Some Jews thought that before the Messiah returned to establish his kingdom, Jeremiah would return to the earth and restore the Ark and the altar to their proper places in the temple. Some apocryphal books even picture a white-bearded Jeremiah holding a golden sword to the great Jewish hero Judas Maccabees to use in the overthrowing of the Greeks. And they think, well, oh, when the Messiah comes, it'll be like Judas Maccabees, the man of the sword, but, Je- but Jeremiah will come and hand it to this true Messiah. It wasn't Ju- Judas Maccabees, but Jeremiah will come. He'll bring the ark back. He'll, he'll, he'll restore everything and we'll be ready for our Jesus to thump some heads with some literal swords. 
But still others, they speculated farther. Some people... Some of the people, uh, something of the character, they saw something of the character of John the Baptist in Jesus' ministry. Some saw the fire and intensity of Elijah. Others saw the lamentation and grief of Jeremiah. In all three of these identities, however, Jesus was thought to only be the Messiah's forerunner who had returned in, uh, in some way with God-given miraculous powers. But some people were less specific and simply speculated that Jesus was one of the prophets. In the Old Testament, there were prophets galore. God regularly sent men who spoke the very words of God to His chosen people. But when John the Baptist and Jesus entered the scene, there hadn't been a prophet on, in Israel for 400 years. Ten generations. Many people believed that the, at, that the time of the Messiah was getting close and God was speaking through His prophets again. And all of the prophets prophesied of the coming Messiah, the Anointed One, the Christ. That's what they were doing, testifying of the coming Deliverer. All the prophets gave us ways to recognize the Messiah when He came. And Jesus was another of those prophets teaching and preaching in mysterious parables. We can't understand what He's saying, but clearly God's hands on Him. Look at the miraculous powers and He's telling us things about the kingdom so that when it comes, we'll recognize the Messiah and realize he was talking about himself. In each instance, the people considered Jesus to be the forerunner of the Messiah, but not the Messiah himself. They couldn't deny his supernatural powers, but they would not accept him as the Messiah and Savior. They came as close to God's ultimate truth as they could without fully recognizing it and accepting it. Isn't that a tragedy? Guys? If you're here and you don't submit to King Jesus, you came closer to the truth than they did. Because you have more revelation than they did because of a risen Savior that you reject. And you'll be even more indictable than this generation was. We've got to keep that in mind, don't we? These things are serious. You're responsible for what you've heard for what you've, and what you've done with what you've heard. Enough with the ignorant speculations. Jesus wants to give the disciples an opportunity to express what the disciples have learned. How much do they understand? So he said to them in verse 15, he said, but who do you say that I am? We've, had, we've heard all their speculations. Who do you say that I am? And we get now Peter's revelation. Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus' second question expects the disciples to have a better view of Jesus' mission than the crowds, and boy, do they. He told them that the secrets of heaven had been revealed to them, and now they show that they really had. But the level at which that they get this is actually astounding. I say that because although Peter's the speaker and indeed the leader of the representative group, he's speaking for all of them there. He, his, his understanding is likely no deeper than the rest of them, but his boldness and assertiveness give him a prominent place among the disciples that we'll consider in more depth next week. I want to encourage you all. We all know the truth. We all need to be bold and assertive in proclaiming the truth. We can't be afraid of it. Peter's commended for that boldness. They all knew the same thing Peter knew. Well, they, who do you all say that I, the Son of Man, am? And Peter's the one that spoke up. Brothers and sisters, let us all be the ones that speak up. We can't be ashamed of what we know and what we believe. For now, let's consider, though, this twofold revelation from the lips of Peter, that thou art the Christ and that you're the Son of the living God. Christ, first of all. Jesus Christ. Christ is not Jesus' last name. You know, 
It's the Greek form of the Hebrew word Messiah, and it means anointed one. And being an anointed one had two connotations in the Old Testament, both kingly and priestly. Both. An anointed one was both of those things. First, we start with the prophetic. In the Old Testament, God spoke to His people through the prophets. They were anointed with the Holy Spirit of God and spoke the very words of God, which is why it always says what? Thus saith the Lord. How many times do you read that in all the prophets? Thus saith the Lord. They're anointed with the Spirit of God to speak the very words of God. Moses was the first major prophet. He wrote the first five books of the Bible. And after Moses, there was a succession of other prophets who spoke and wrote God's Word. But Moses predicted a coming prophet as the final revelation of God to his people. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 18. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Him you shall hear according to all you desired of the Lord your God in Horeb in the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, nor let me see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, What they've spoken is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren and will put my words in his mouth and he will speak to them all that I command him. Do you see what happened here? The Israelites asked for a cessation of revelation. We don't want you to speak anymore. It terrified us when we came to Horeb and you're given the law and the mountain's all on a smoke. We're terrified of that. Don't speak to us anymore. And God said, instead of being insulted, He said, that's a good idea. I'm going to send a final revelation of God. I can answer that prayer. In fact, that was my plan from the, from the beginning. I will ultimately send a prophet from among you who will speak all that I command him. He will be my final revelation. So all the prophets prophesied of the coming Messiah, the Anointed One, the Christ. And all the prophets gave us ways to recognize the Messiah when He came. The entire Old Testament is looking forward to this final revelation from God. And Peter tells us that Jesus is the fulfillment of Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 18 in Acts 3, 22 through 24. In case you don't believe me, I want you to turn over there with me too. Acts 3, 22 through 24. For Moses truly said to the fathers, and listen what he quotes, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things. Whatever he says to you, it shall be that every soul who does not hear this prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and all those who follow, as many as have, as have spoken, have foretold these days. So Jesus isn't John the Baptist. He isn't Elijah. He isn't Jeremiah. He isn't one of the prophets. He is the Christ to which all of them were pointing. He's the last one, the anointed one. He is the final revelation of God. The prophet said there'd be a gradual slide away from the spiritual understanding of the law right before the Messiah comes, but that God would raise up one last anointed one who would embody the spirit of Elijah. So who, who, were the, who was this Elijah who was to come? Who was, who was that? 
Who would call the people back to the straight paths of the, of the law to prepare the coming of the anointed one? Remember from Malachi 4, 4 through 6. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb for all of Israel with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Who is that prophet? Well, Jesus tells us. Remember? Back in Matthew 11, 9 through 14. We're doing Bible drill today, but sometimes to understand the Bible, you actually have to bounce around a little and say, what is all this talking about, don't you? So Matthew 11, 9 through 14. Jesus speaking of John the Baptist, he says, What did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen one greater than John the Baptist, but he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than thee. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, if you are willing to receive it, he is the Elijah who is to come. So Jesus there indicated the end of the age of the law and the prophets. Jesus, John the Baptist was the last of the prophets. Why? Because the prophet had come. The Christ had arrived. There's no need for further revelation because in Christ we know perfect revelation. The author of Hebrews picks up on that idea in Hebrews 1.1. 1, 1, God who at various times and in various ways spoke to us in times past to the fathers by the prophets. But in these last days He has spoken to us how? By His Son. Guys, you looking for some prophet to speak to you the words of God? Let me give you some advice. Read the Bible that points us to the prophet, that tells us everything he did and the implications thereof. The prophet already came. Recognize him. Submit to King Jesus. He's all we need. During Christ's life, many people recognized Jesus as a prophet. When the people were speculating who Jesus was, when Jesus raised the widow of Nain from the dead, Luke 7, 16, fear came on all of them and they glorified God saying, A great prophet has risen up among us. When Jesus told the Samaritan woman facts about her life that he couldn't have possibly known, she said, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. That's not good enough. Guys, if you think Jesus is a good teacher, you think he's a great source of truth, you think he can teach great morality, you don't know Jesus well enough to enter the kingdom of God. He's not a prophet. He's not a good teacher. He is the Christ. Jesus doesn't leave the Samaritan woman there. After he demonstrates even more wisdom, she pries even deeper into Jesus' identity in John 4, 25-26. And she says, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called the Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. What's it referring back to? Deuteronomy 18, 15-18. He's the Christ, the final revelation of God, the one that tells us all things. Not only is there this prophetic element, though, to being the Christ. Prophets were anointed ones, but who else was? Kings. The kingly element. Try and follow this. Solomon was... I'm sorry. Uh, Saul was the first man anointed king of Israel. And after the kingdom was removed from him, David, from the line of Judah, was anointed king. And there's a prophecy that's told to David, just like was told to Moses that there would be a final revelation, a final prophet. It was told that there would be a final king as well. 
to David, 2 Samuel 7, 12-13. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom for how long? Forever. A final king who will have an eternal reign, just like there would be a final prophet who would be the final revelation of God. This coming anointed king would come as the son of man figure from Daniel 7, 13. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like the son of man was coming. And he came upon the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, all the nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is for how long? An everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Yeah. Jesus, the Son of Man, is this anointed one who is the final revelation of God and is the one who will usher in this eternal kingdom and subjugate all the nations to himself. Not the prophesied now the prophesied timing takes us back to Caesarea Philippi. Who was Philip the Tetrarch? Well, he was the son of the non-Jewish, non-Judah-born king of Herod the Great. Guys, I love this stuff. I hope I don't bore you, but I, I love this stuff. This goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. How many of you knew that's the first book of the Bible, right? Genesis 49.10, The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh, the one to whom it belongs, comes. And to him shall be the obedience of all the peoples. From the very beginning, all the ruler's staff is going to be through the tribe of Judah. When it departs from there, the one to whom it belongs will be born. Jesus was born during the reign of King Herod, the first non-Judah-born king who got there through political maneuvering appointed by the Roman government illegitimately. And now Jesus, the Son of Man, has came on the scene. That's what's going on here. You can't make this story up. Why, why do you believe the Bible? Because you'd have to be a fool not to if you knew the Bible. Its author is so obviously God. Jesus was born during the reign of Herod the Great. Judgment is here. The Christ will reclaim the lost scepter. And that's actually what it says in another text in Jeremiah 33, 14 through 16. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good word which I have spoken concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah. He's referring back to this prophecy all the way from Genesis 49. In those days and at that time I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth and he will execute justice and righteousness on the earth. In those days Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell safely and this is the name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. Also Isaiah 11.1 1, Then a shoot will spring from the stump of Jesse. The king's line of Jesse, David being a descendant of Jesse from the tribe of Judah, that stump that will be cut off, a shoot will spring out unexpectedly from what's left of that little stump. And a branch from his roots will bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, the final revelation of God, the final coming King. This book's amazing, guys. 
can't even hold it all together. When you start studying, you're like, how many things do you bring in? Because you can't stay. It's just so intricately woven together and connected. It's the most amazing thing in the world because it's the truth of God. Not only is this son of man a replacement of the Philippi, of Caesarea Philippi though. He's the Christ, the coming shoot that would replace the illegitimate kingly line of the Herodian dynasty. Not only is he the Christ though, he's the what? He's the son of the living God. Remember Caesar Augustus' title? Divine Julius Philius, the son of the divine Julius, or simply Divus Philius, the son of God? <laughs> no. No, it's not Caesar who's divine. They can, Picture the Lord Jesus and His disciples walking the Roman road that went from Bethsaida to Caesarea Philippi. More than likely, as they walked past the temple of Augustus, Jesus asked His disciples, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Look into that temple made to this pagan king who had deified himself. And people worship him in there. And he's walking with his disciples. And he says, who do men say that I, the son of man, the one who's going to come and overthrow all things and bring judgment to the nations and, and establish an everlasting dominion? Who do the people say that I, the son of man, am? It was in the shadow of this temple dedicated to a mere mortal man who was deified upon uh, uh, during his life that Peter responded, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Julius Caesar was called the divine Julius after he was assassinated. Caesar Augustus was then called the Son of God. But both Caesar Augustus and Julius Caesar, they have something in common. It's not the color of their eyes. It's not lineage. They're both dead. Both of these gods are dead. Guys, if your God's dead, you ain't got a real good God, do you? But Jesus is the Son of the living God. He will inaugurate a kingdom that will never end because He will conquer death never to die again. The Lord Jesus is alive forevermore. He is Lord, not Caesar. That's what's going on here. That's the confession. Jesus, we believe you are the Son of Man. You're going to get rid of this compromised subjugation of the Jews under the... Uh, the uh, Roman emperors, these deified Roman emperors. Not only are you the Christ that's going to replace Philippi, you're the true Son of God in a way that Caesar Augustus could never be. You are divinity in human form. The Word truly was made flesh and really did dwell among us. How much did Peter get it? How much did the disciples get it? They got it this time, didn't they? The Jews understood the Messiah aspect but there was no way they could have understood the Son of the Living God aspect. But it was too, it, because it was too subtly hidden in the pages of the Old Testament. As important, an important Old Testament prophet, he says that David's future son, it says of him, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. Speaking of God, he will be the true Son of God. They took that metaphorically. God pulled it off literally, didn't he? In Psalm 2, we see this Son of Man prefigured as the nation's rage and, and the, as He that sits on, in the heavens laughs. And the coming Messiah is there dressed by God in these words, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. This Son of Man is going... that He laughs at the scheming nations, at the horns and at the beasts. He laughs! Because Jesus sits at the right hand of the throne of God right now. God's still laughing. You're afraid of what? 
Mere mortals, guess what? They're going to have a whole lot in common with Julius Caesar and Caesar Augustus coming soon to a city near you. They're going to be dead. Jesus lives. An indestructible life. We, what are we scared of? If he that sits in the heavens laughs, we need to have the faith to laugh with him, don't we? Because we're on this winning side of this equation. People want us to leave politics out of religion. Well, that's impossible. Because it's all of Christ for all of life. Jesus is Lord itself is a political statement. Do you know that? The Greek word for Lord was kurios. The word used by Roman citizens to acknowledge the divinity of Caesar. They had to say kurios, Kaiser, kurios, Caesar. The title was never used of the emperors until they were thought to be deified through some religious ceremony. Therefore, it was used as only a divine title. Within the empire, there was a test phrase used to check the loyalty of the people. That kurios, Kaiser. Christians or Jews who wouldn't say these words were singled out from pagans and executed. In those days, when Christians insisted that Jesus was Lord, it meant that Jesus, not Caesar, was divine. Brothers and sisters, Jesus, not Caesar, is divine today. Jesus, not presidents. Jesus, not governors. Jesus, not anybody. We stand on the truth of God's Word. We are free men under Christ, subjugated to no man. It's who we are. It's our birthright. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, it hits different when you know that. And believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you'll be saved. Yeah, if, if you confess Jesus as Lord knowing that they might kill you for it, and the only way you're going to do that is because you believe God raised Jesus from the dead, you'll be saved if you believe that much. I'll obey King Jesus in the face of oppression from the government, no matter if they, if they threaten my life. Why? Because I actually believe this stuff, and I believe the reward is worth the sacrifice. That's saving faith. That's saving faith. With the heart, man believes, resulting in righteousness. With the mouth, man confesses, resulting in salvation. For the Scripture says, whoever believes in Him will not be disappointed. You won't be disappointed, guys. We win in life or in death. We win. And we won't be disappointed. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all being abounding in riches for all who call upon Him. To, neither to Jews, ruled over by the Tetrarchs and the Herod dynasty, or to Greeks, ruled over by Caesar Augustus. The same Lord is Lord of all, of both things, because He's the Christ. He's the Son of the living God. And He abounds in, and bounds, abounds in riches to all those who call upon Him. For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. The gospel of the kingdom isn't just about getting souls into heaven. It's about getting God's will done on earth. Do you know that? Thy kingdom come... Where? Amen. Let it be so. Amen and amen, right? Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Jesus was found in appearance as a man and He humbled Himself to, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. But what was the outcome? It, wasn't, it didn't end at the cross. For this reason God also has highly exalted Him and bestowed upon Him a name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow. 
At the name of Caesar? Uh-uh. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. And of, of those on heaven and on earth and those under the earth. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Not Caesar. Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Leave Jesus out of politics? How? What book are you reading? You can't. It's no wonder that the parable of the mustard seed in 13, 31 through 32, and the parable of the leaven is sandwiched between the telling of the parable of the wheat and the tares in 24 through 30 and its explanation in 36 through 43. Jesus is explaining the mysteries of the kingdom once he's fulfilled his ministry by dying on the cross and then is presented before the Ancient of Days. He was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. That's actually why it says in Romans 1, 4 through 5, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God Sound familiar? Son of the living God, with power by His resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received mercy and apostleship. Why? To bring about the obedience of the faith among the Gentiles, to expand His kingdom to all the tongues, all the tribes, and all the nations. There's a purpose to the gospel. To bring about the obedience of faith to the whole nations, to everybody everywhere. Not Jesus in your heart. Not Jesus, your boyfriend. Not Jesus in your church pew. No, Jesus everywhere. Universal dominion over everything. That's the, that's the goal of the gospel. And he's going to get it done. Why? Because after the resurrection, what did he tell the disciples? All. How much authority? All authority has been given to me. Where? In heaven. And where else? On earth. Why do we have this pietistic religion that's just about the salvation of your souls? It's Gnostic. Jesus didn't just redeem your souls. He redeemed your bodies too. That's why there's a bodily resurrection. It is all of Christ for all of life. All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go therefore and what? Make disciples of who? All the people. No. All the nations. Whoa, that sounds pretty political. Keep Jesus out of politics. No, don't. Tell the kings to submit to King Jesus that there's a king higher than them. That you're not. Caesar is not Lord. That the Lord will give an account to King Jesus who is above them. That they must bend the knee. That they must obey His laws. That they must punish evil according to what God says is evil. And reward good according to what God says is good. Not according to their own dictates of what they think today. Look at what that's produced. The godlessness in our societies. The things so called as laws. And if you actually stand up and you reject drag queen story hours and drag queens dancing in front of our little children, you stand against it and you, you decry it for evil, they throw you out by force and arrest you and the Christian leaders say you're the bad guy because you didn't obey the law. We don't know the gospel anymore. It's about more than getting souls into heaven. It's about having God's will done on earth. <coughs> Back to Daniel 7.14. At that time, all the peoples and nations and men would serve Him. But in the parable of the mustard seed and the leaven, Jesus explains that this dominion will grow and expand gradually. Indeed, the kingdom would grow first to bless all the nations like birds lodging in its branches, but then it would overtake and subdue the nations just as leaven spreads throughout and transforms the entire lump of dough. Should remind us of something. Isaiah 9 7 
There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. Indeed, unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall rest on his shoulders. It's not a future hope. It does. The kingdom arrived. It, it was at hand in the person of Christ. He is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus is not waiting to be Lord. He's Lord right now, reigning over His people, Israel. That brings me to our last point that I want to make. Keep Jesus out of politics? Yeah, right. Separation of church and state, right? Absolutely. I'm going to surprise you here and say, I absolutely believe 100% in separation of church and state. Amen? The administration of grace is the church's jurisdiction, and the administration of justice in the store belongs to the state. Amen? And both are under the authority of King Jesus. Jesus is head of the church. And Jesus is head of the state. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That's what all authority on heaven and earth means. And that's the truth upon which the United States was founded. Guys, we've been indoctrinated into the bunch. We don't know civics anymore. And we don't know history. And we don't know where we came from. We don't even know the ideals on which the United States of America were founded. The Protestant Reformation had recognized Jesus, not the Pope, as the head of the church, doing away with papal infallibility. The American Revolution was the political outworking of reformed Protestantism, recognizing Jesus, not the king, as the head of the state, and doing away with the divine right of kings. It was, they were doing the same. They'd seen it done in the Catholic Church through the Protestant Reformation, and the priesthood of believers replacing the papal authority. And they said, you know what? Jesus isn't just the head of the church. There's a separation between church and state, but Jesus is also the head of the state. Because what had happened was King Henry over in England, he had said, yeah, there's no pope, but I'm the king, and the church is under my authority. And then they did religious persecution against people. And they demanded that people worship the way the king said, and give homage to the king. And the Americans, they didn't like the religious persecution and they fled it to come over here. And they fled under a banner that we've forgotten, that's not taught in our schools under anymore, that the battle cry of the American Revolution was, we have no king but Christ. Well, why isn't that in your history books? Because our leaders want to be Caesar is Lord again. Instead of saying, no, no, Caesar is not Lord the law is king and Jesus is the lawgiver. That's another thing that's ripped from our textbooks. Lex Rex, ever heard of it? It means the law is king. The reason we have presidents and not kings is because there's a law and there's a great lawgiver. And we operated under an English common law. And everybody recognized their rights were given where? Not by the Constitution. There's people, there's people, so-called conservatives today that think that the, their rights are given to them by their constitution and that we've got to defend people from taking our rights. They can't take your rights. They're given to you by God. We have the duty as men under Christ to stand up for those rights, to proclaim those rights, defend the rights of others, and to proclaim the superiority of King Jesus. The premise of the government was Lex Rex, the lawless king, and the lawgiver was Christ. 
our forefathers wrote of our form of government being a, you remember this, a city on the hill. It's not talked about much anymore either. And if it is talked about, it's talked about in a negative way. It's talking about by all your pietist Gnostics that say, you know, the America's it's, it's, it's not anything that's supposed to be looked to as any sort of example. Perish the thought. It's what we were set up as. We've drifted from it, but we were set up to recognize the authority of King Jesus. And we said we were a city on the hill. Was that sacrilegious? No, not at all. We were seeking to disciple the nations to recognize, for them to recognize that your leaders are not mere men, but that there's a, there is an authority over you. He's called the Son of Man. He's called the Ancient of Days. He's called the King of Kings. He's called the Lord of Lords. He is the Christ. He is the Son of the Living God. And no human authority is higher than that. And we stand under Him as free men. Kings and priests in the kingdom of Christ. And that all the men who serve as our leaders, that they are simply our servants, carrying out a jurisdiction under Christ, just like I as your pastor am just your servant, not your leader. You have a leader, and that's Christ. And I serve Him by leading you under Him. Same thing for the state. Do I believe in separation of church and state? Absolutely. Christ is the head of both. And if we lose that, you get dragged Queen Story Hour and you get 60 million babies killed in the womb and you have rampant immorality everywhere. That's what you get when you deny the Lordship of Christ. You get what we've got because we left what we were built upon. And we are under the judgment of God now because of it. We're going to be judged. No, no, no. Look around. We are under judgment. We've got to remember these things and stand in them again. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven, forgive their sins, and heal their land. Oh, that's a prophecy to Israel. Yep, it was true of the nature of God then for Israel. And we as the Israel of God in our own lands, we can trust God to do the same thing. We don't wait on a fix in Washington or in Nashville. We be what we're supposed to be and stand in what we believe and what we know to be true. And God will vindicate us. He will. But we've got to come out from among them and be a separate people under the authority of King Jesus. Quoting Maximus in... Gladiator, one of my favorite movies. Manly movie. That's that toxic masculinity at its best right there. Men using their strength to display valor and to defend the helpless and the lowly. That's what that movie's kind of about, isn't it? He says once, he says, that there is a dream that was wrong, and it shall be again. Rest assured, there is a vision that is the American vision. There is. It is the biblical form of government. Not perfect. It needs improved upon, but it's in the right direction. It's recognizing that there is no king but Christ. It's recognizing that the law is king. That truth was uncorked, and it's not going to be put back in the bottle. And it shall be again. The judgment will come. Don't be discouraged. Judgment is here, and it will get worse before it gets better. But guys, rest assured, to the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. This is a temporary lull. God dwells in eternity. We can afford to be patient. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. We're not a secular state. That's not what we're intended to be. And God's people need to recognize that and worship Jesus. 
So the assault is coming. Who defines marriage? Who owns your stuff? What must you celebrate? What services must your business offer? Who can, your, who can be members of your churches? Who must your churches hire? Who can be leaders in college and student organizations? For whom must you perform marriages? What can you preach? What can the state tax? We don't get our rights from God, they say. But ultimately, we know. They're wrong. We say they're wrong. We point them back to King Jesus. And we stand in the authority of the resurrected Christ. You say, well, how does all this play out? Well, look, at, look at where this ends. We don't go conquering with a sword. If you're here and we're going to go overthrow the government, you're hearing me wrong. We don't have to do that. We, the government is Christ. We don't have to overthrow it. We have to stand in it. We're not trying to win. Jesus already won. We're standing in His victory. They might oppose us, and when they do, we don't back down. Jesus was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And what did God do? He, ra- he raised Him from the dead. We practice civil disobedience to tyrants. We stand against the enemy. That's what, the whole, that's what Jesus did, and that's what the, all the apostles did after Him. And they ran over them like a lawnmower over grass in the early spring. Hadn't even had time to firm up yet. It was so easy to mow over, and they did. But here we are 2,000 years later. The church is still going on. Why? Because you can't extinguish. You can't extinguish it. So after this great confession, what happened? Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus commends them and encourages them. You are, thou, art, uh, thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. We'll charge and they will fall and we'll make progress. It's, it's guaranteed. Right? I will also give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth will be what was bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And he warned the disciples that they should not tell anyone that he was the Christ. Not at that time. But look where he goes immediately following. From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and raised on the third day. I bet when he told them... I'm the Christ, the Son of the living God. And He told them that the gates of hell weren't going to prevail against them. I bet they got so excited that they were about... that Jeremiah was about to bring that proverbial sword. He was going to bring the Ark of the Covenant back. He's going to hand it to Jesus. And they're going to go all out together. And they're going to go conquer Rome. And He says, no. No, from that time He started telling them, I'm going to die on the cross. I'm going to be a peaceable person displaying the fruit of the Spirit. And I'm going to trust God to fight on my behalf. And God did. Brothers and sisters, that's what we do. We stand in these truths. We hold to these truths. We look to the one who secured our victory by his death. He paid for our sins. He purchased the whole world from it for himself by his death in the path of obedience. Christians, how do we win? We obey God. You just obey God. You be what you're supposed to be. You don't get discouraged. You don't be this defeatist that's moaning and groaning about everything because we're going to be the losers. We're not the losers. We're more than conquerors because of our risen Lord who is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and we stand in His victory. Stand with me. Kind and gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You for this truth, this great confession of Peter. Lord, we thank You that You are the Christ, the final revelation of God, that we can study Your Word and we can know exactly who we're supposed to be and what we're supposed to do, and that You are the Son of the living God, that You have ushered into for us a freedom, and that we we that are in Christ, that we are free in Christ Jesus under His gentle reign. 
that He is meek and lowly toward His people, Lord. And we're grateful to, for, to You for that. Lord, I pray that You'll give us faith like You had, that we would be obedient to Your ways and walk in them, that You'll give us courage and faith that You will win, that You will fight for us, and we don't have to be fighters, not fighters in a physical sense, but only with the sword of the Spirit, with truth. And God, that you would do as you said. Let your enemies be caught up in their own devices. Let them fall in their own traps. Bring your curses upon those that hate you and your blessings on those that obey you and establish your kingdom to bring about the obedience of faith among the Gentiles, among every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. Do not let your church fail. We know it won't. It's in Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.